The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit is now in session. All persons having business before this Honorable Court may now draw near and they will be heard. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Thank you. Uh, if you would, please call our first case for argument this morning. Case number 19-3044, case number 20-1378, Central Valley AG Cooperative versus Daniel Leonard et al. Okay, Ms. Thorne. Good morning. My name is Thorne, and I represent the appellant, Central Valley Ag Cooperative, in its capacity as the fiduciary of its ERISA health plan. Your Honors, as defendant the benefit group, which I'll refer to as TBG, conceded in its briefs, this case presents novel and difficult issues. We covered all of those issues in our briefs, all of which we submit merit your attention. But the utterly decisive point is the district court's error in finding that TBG and defendant AMPS were not fiduciaries. This incorrect finding on fiduciary status set the district court down the wrong path for everything that followed. Not only is the decision not in line with ERISA's fiduciary definitions and the interpreting case law, but it can't be squared with this court's recent decision in Rozo versus Principal Life, which was decided after the district court's decision and in which the Supreme Court just denied cert. Under Rozo, TBG and AMPS became fiduciaries for three reasons when they manipulated the MBR claims submission criteria and increased their fees, when they took undisclosed... Well, if we're, going to use, if we're going to use Rozo and McCaffrey and Teats and that line of cases, uh, do prong one. Did they not merely follow a specific contractual term? They did not, Your Honor. Under the MBR program, TBG and AMPS did not merely follow a contractual term. Instead, they took unilateral action, per the Rozo test, relating to plan management and plan assets by changing the MBR contractual terms regarding which claims would be submitted for their review. That unilateral action meets the first part of the test, Your Honor. Well, counsel, now that's in the second prong. I don't mean to be technical here, but if, if you look at Rozo, Teats, McCaffrey, that's in the second prong, unilateral action. The first is, did not merely follow a contractual term. I apologize, Your Honor. So I was launching into the second part of the test, but to be clear, the specific contract term here was not followed because the contract, the MBR contract, set forth 10 criteria which would be used to submit claims for review. TBG and AMPS, changed that criteria to increase the number of fees, uh, I'm sorry, to increase the number of claims they reviewed and the fees they therefore received because the more claims they reviewed, the more fees they got. That's not following the contract terms. The action was unilateral and also meets the second part of the test because TBG and AMPS did not obtain the contractually required consent of CVA when they made these changes. The contract said to make changes to the claim submission criteria, you must obtain written consent from CVA. And in fact, 
TBG and AMPS's expert agreed that written consent to change those contractual terms was required. So the second part of the Rozo test is met as well. Well, now wait, it says unilateral action. Unilateral means one side. I thought every single claim here, as you know, it's the theme of the, the other side. Uh, every single claim here was sent to you some way and somehow you approved every dad burn one of them. What's the answer? That, that is the defendant's uh, argument, Your Honor. It was hotly contested whether the weekly funding request, which is the document that the defendants say, um, quote, identified all the fees to be paid AMPS. Uh, they say it's the weekly funding request that we approved, and that means we knew about what was happening. First of all, only AMPS is listed on those requests, not TBG. Uh, it's, and if you put eyes on the actual weekly funding requests, which is uh, TBG's addendum page 12, you will see that it's a spreadsheet-like document that contains only dates of service, a claim number, the name of the provider, the name of the participant, and a dollar figure. It does not contain any information about under which criteria uh, the claim was adjudicated. And so CVA had no way of knowing whether um, those claims fit under the criteria or not. They had no reason to believe that TBG and AMPS were not following the criteria. We learned this during the course of the case. Second, the opacity of those weekly funding requests was laid bare in the deposition of TBG's in-house counsel. When confronted with a weekly funding request, TBG's in-house counsel was unable to determine what CVA was being billed in fees and conceded that CVA was not able to understand what fees it was being charged in those weekly funding requests. So significantly, CVA raised this claims manipulation criteria issue in detail and how this conduct made AMPS and TBG fiduciaries before the district court. But none of this is even mentioned in the district court's decision when it ruled that TBG and AMPS were not fiduciaries. If there was any doubt before, we now know that Rozo's fiduciary test governs the MBR claims submission criteria issue, and that under that test, TBG and AMPS were fiduciaries. As a result, summary judgment should not have been granted in favor of the defendants, should have been granted in favor of CBA. But at a minimum, summary judgment should not have been granted in favor of the defendants, or in, sorry, in front of TBG and AMPS on this issue, because there was a disputed issue of fact about who made the decision, whether it was TBG, whether it was AMPS, or whether it was the both of them who, who made the decision to change the claims submission criteria. I, I was going started to say, Your Honor, that uh, TBG and AMPS were fiduciaries for a number of reasons under the Rozo test. The second reason they became fiduciaries was because they exercised unilateral authority over plan assets when, with AMPS's help, TBG took an undisclosed, unauthorized 7.5% of fees under MBR. Again, CBA had no opportunity to reject that setup because they kept it hidden. 
So the Rozo test is met for this conduct as well. But even without regard to Rozo, the district court committed reversible error. This court held over a decade ago in Braden versus Walmart that information regarding service provider fees is material when non-disclosure would mislead and impede the ability to make an informed decision. Just like the district court in Braden, the district court here didn't apply the materiality test to the failure to disclose the fees and instead just um, concluded that there was no duty to disclose the fees. As it did in Braden, that failure constitutes reversible error. Now, defendants argue that the ERISA disclosure statement uh, made uh, put CVA on alert that they were going to get these fees. Counsel, I'm, I'm a sentence or two behind you. In yes, Braden, sir. it was acknowledged they were fiduciaries, right? Period, period, period. In Brayden, the de the defendant was this plan sponsor, and yes, it was acknowledged to be a fiduciary. But what was at issue were the underlying revenue-sharing fees of the other service providers. And so when the court talked about whether those fees needed to be disclosed, and as a result of them not being disclosed, there had been a breach, it said they were material, that the, the whether they were... Be disclosed was material, and that the materiality test needed to be applied. Now, I thought I thought in that case the people who did not disclose were fiduciaries. Is that right or wrong? I believe that's incorrect, Your Honor. The oh, you think uh, it's wrong? Okay, go ahead. Yes. Uh, so I'm talking about the ERISA disclosure statement because the defendants make a big deal about this statement. Uh, it's a one-page document that TBG prepared. It's important to look at what it was all about. Um, to be clear, the disclosure statement states that it was being provided to CVA to evaluate the reasonableness of TBG's, quote, total compensation, close quote, based on fees from other vendors. It then goes on to say that TBG, again, quote, may receive, close quote, Welcome to AT&T's under the security code. You there may are 12 versus, uh, or instead of, you already know you are going to receive is material. And it's particularly material under these circumstances because TBG knew it had a side contract with AMPS to get a kickback of 7.5%, and that agreement was never disclosed to CVA. It was only discovered during discovery and it's material here because tbg's undisclosed fees exceeded its disclosed fees so what this meant was it, it made it impossible for the ERISA disclosure statement to do what it was supposed to do which was to reveal to cva tbg's total compensation because well, can I counsel? I thought I thought you said the magic word total. I thought that the thirty percent was a total that CVA knew about, and this is yep. just a split up of that thirty percent. And so, to you, it doesn't make any difference because it's a total. It makes a difference for this reason, Your Honor. First of all, if CVA had known that AMPS was willing to do the work. 
for 22.5% instead of 30% because all, for all it knew, it was only paying AMPS 30%. But AMPS ultimately took only 22% of that and kicked back 7.5% to TBG. So if it had known that it was that AMPS was willing to do the work for 22.5%, then it wouldn't have, wouldn't have negotiated that rate. Also, importantly, the extra 7.5% that went to TBG was on top of the contractual fee that TBG did disclose to CBA for $18.15 per employee per month. That is in a separate agreement, the Administrative Services Agreement, that TBG entered into with CBA. So that is what CBA thought TBG was getting. So it's material in that way, Your Honor, too. It's not just about the fact that we agreed to 30%. We agreed to 30% to AMPS. And hiding fees meant we could not fulfill our fiduciary duty to determine whether TBG's fees under these circumstances were reasonable or excessive. But that's what these ERISA disclosure statement says it's intended to do. Counsel, is that, uh, counsel, is that then your alleged loss to the plan? I, I, I'm sorry, Your Honor, you, you, caught, you cut out. I, I was asking if that was the alleged loss to the plan, what you just explained. So, yeah, Your Honor, this is a, an argument that the defendants have made, that because it was a savings to the plan, then there's no loss to the plan. But ultimately what happened was that these MBR services created chaos with the providers, which resulted in the providers filing a lawsuit against CVA based on the adjudications by TBG and AMPS under MBR. CVA ended up having to spend hundreds of thousands of additional dollars to resolve those claims. So any purported savings under RBR was illusory at best. So going back to MBR, and then I'm going to move on to RBR. If that's I've, I've got a Judge Gross ask it uh, kind of fancy. I'll ask it kind of plain. In my last card, we'd say, you don't have any damages. Your Honor, we have damages here for the excessive fees, and we are entitled under the prohibited transaction rules to seek disgorgement of any excessive fees. The undisclosed fees were excessive. In addition, Your Honor... Judge Erickson has a question. Turn your mic, yes. Judge Erickson, I think, if I read your mind. I'm sorry. How, how can no. they be excessive when they're consistent with the contractual terms? They're only consistent with, with uh, the contractual terms with respect to AMPS, Your Honor. I, I just want to make clear. The MBR contract provided for a fee only to AMPS, not to TBG. TBG and AMPS cannot wash payments through each other as a way to avoid liability for undisclosed and potentially excessive fees. In fact, Your Honor, if the district court's decision is left to stand, it means that service providers have carte blanche to make opaque and misleading statements about their fees. And under that rule, a fiduciary could never fulfill its fiduciary responsibility to ensure that the plan is only paying reasonable fees. Now, we also had hidden fees under RBR. RBR was the second year of the relationship. And in that case, 
the defendants also uh, fall under the Rozo test, if you will, because they exercised, again, unilateral authority over plan assets by taking an additional undisclosed, unauthorized 2.5% in fees. So they had, uh, the parties all executed an RBR agreement. The parties to that agreement, to be clear, are CBA, TBG, AMPS, and AMPS's subsidiary, CDS. And it's also undisputed that AMPS subsidiary, CDS, was a named fiduciary under that contract. These were A, quote, limited fiduciary, right, counsel? C correct. But, but a fiduciary Proceed. nonetheless, Your Honor. Proceed. And so... I'm going to use uh, AMPS and CDS interchangeably. I'll refer to them as AMPS as the district court mm -hmm. did, and they were treated interchangeably throughout the case. So the RBR agreement provided for a fee of 10% of gross billed charges, and that fee of 10% was to AMPS only. Notwithstanding, when TBG prepared and submitted the weekly funding requests, uh, to, to send it to CBA, it included an extra 2.5% in fees in the amounts billed. In other words, it, it billed 12.5%, not the 10% uh, required by the contract. TBG then collected the 12.5% and sent it to AMPS, the whole 12.5%. AMPS had no contractual authority whatsoever through any agreement to ever receive 12.5%. AMPS then kicked back 2.5% to TBG. TBG has no authority whatsoever in the... Thank you, Your Honor. Yeah, I want to be sure you contract. knew about it. Some can't see the clock. Proceed. I, You're using I, your rebuttal. Thank you. Um, so in any event, Your Honor... The contract, the RBR contract, called for a 10% fee, and the uh, defendants, TBG and AMPS, over-collected a 2.5% fee. Recognizing they had no authority to do that, the uh, TBG and AMPS drafted an amendment, but it's undisputed that CVA never received that amendment, never executed that amendment. Despite that, TBG and AMPS continued to collect the 2.5%. The district court committed clear error when it uh, modified that contract based on a pre-contract email. But the agreement itself has an an all um, an entire agreement provision that says it can't be modified by, by any other writing. It's of course wrote contract law that parole evidence cannot be used to change an executed agreement. The email the district court relied upon to modify the agreement doesn't even discuss a fee to TBG. And most importantly, no service provider can belatedly use a Scrivener's error to unilaterally raise their fees uh, with an ERISA plan. But the prohibited transaction rules do prohibit that conduct. So if left intact, the district court's ruling would stand for the proposition with respect to the RBR issue that we apply a lower standard of construction regarding ERISA plan documents than we do to commercial agreements. And that rule would turn ERISA on its head. So summary judgment should be rendered in favor of CVA on that point. Your Honor, I'll reserve the remaining of you my rebuttal. Thank you. you. Okay. Mr. Talkin, I understand you're going first. 
I am, Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honors. My name is Tim Talkin. Um, I am the attorney for the Benefit Group, who is the third-party administrator of a health care plan sponsored by CVA, for which CVA was the named fiduciary. Judge Smithcamp's decision in this case should be affirmed in its entirety because TBG was not a fiduciary, it breached no fiduciary duties, and it engaged in no prohibited transactions. The undisputed evidence in this case established that CVA, as the fiduciary of the plan, chose the plan design, it chose the MBR program, CVA chose the RBR program, CVA approved every transaction at issue in this case, and not a penny of plan funds were spent without CVA's express approval. Well, what about their, what they're trying to say is what you gave them to approve, now they're claiming they were really not too bright, but still what you gave them to approve was just some kind of sheet with numbers on it and they just approved it. What do you say to that? Well, that's wrong, first of all. If you look at our addendum, um, it gives you an example. So, th so there's two. There's really two issues here. There's MBR. If you look at TBG's addendum at 10, under the MBR program, we would send an email which would identify the name of the patient, the date of service, the bill charge, the PPO allowable rate, and the AMPS recommended rate. We would then follow that up with a weekly funding request, which is which was more limited. It didn't have the billed charges, but you could certainly look at, for example, TBG Addendum 10, those that exemplar, and say, okay, well, we're getting this amount of savings. These are the charges, and and if you want more information as the fiduciary, it's your job, CVA, to ask for that information. They never did. They simply approved the, the this these, and they approved every one of them. And now they're claiming, oh, well, you know. TBG should be held liable because we approve these claims. Uh, the, the point, Your Honor, under, under MBR is that, is that CVA had final authority over every claim. And TBG and AMPS couldn't control their fees, as, as Ms. Thorne suggested. Um, here, here's how MBR worked. TBG would receive a claim. It would screen that claim pursuant to 11 criteria set forth in a contract adopted by um, by CVA. If it met the criteria, the claims were sent to AMPS for review. AMPS would review it, make a recommendation. TBG would pass along that recommendation in, as I said, an email and later in weekly funding requests. CVA would review it and approve it, and they approved all of these, um, except for a few where they decided to pay the PPO rate. And, and that's really important, because if CVA did not approve the, the AMPS recommendation, no fee was paid. Remember, TBG's... Did they ever disapprove one? Did, did we? No, did CVA ever disapprove what you sent them? Yes, there were situations in which CVA elected to take the PPO rate and not go with the AMPS recommendation. And, and, and in those situations, there was no fee. Um, TBG's fee as a service provider, was based on a percentage of savings. If they chose the PPO rate, then there's no fee. With respect to PPO's, or excuse me, with respect to TBG's agreement with, with, um, with AMPS, again, we, it was a subcontract. We were doing the screening pursuant to a separate contract in which we would receive 7.5% of the savings. That is expressly authorized by CVA in the Administrative Services Agreement, and that's at our addendum at page 5, which says that the, TB, that the TPA may receive administration commissions, fees, and or rebates from contracted vendors. 
It's also in the ERISA disclosure statement where it says that if the employer has chosen to participate in certain programs offered through third-party vendors, including but not limited to cost containment, which MBR was, then we can receive a percentage of the savings. So this was all disclosed and was all approved by CVA ahead of time. And again, what we're talking about here are savings. There's, if there was no MBR program, then CVA would have had to pay the PPO rate, which is clearly higher than the amount that they actually paid. And the savings were split 70% to CVA, 30% to AMPS. And then pursuant to a separate subcontract, we received 7.5% that was fully disclosed and fully agreed to. With respect to RBR, um, that was a flat fee. It was 12.5%. And it was agreed to ahead of time. This notion that this was somehow an undisclosed fee is belied by you know, every filing that the plaintiffs made in this case. If you look at the... The, their complaint, every version of which was, or three of the versions of which were certified by their CEO, they agreed that the deal was it was going to be 10% to AMPS and 2.5% to CVA. On the day they filed their lawsuit, they filed a brief for, T, for a TRO, and this is our addendum at page 15, that said CVA in the plan committed to pay AMPS 10% of its gross hospital claims, whether or not allowed, and TBG, 2.5% of gross hospital claims, whether or not allowed, and in addition to TBG's third-party administration fees for the privilege of accessing and implementing AMP's proprietary savings. Um, so this was all disclosed. It was all approved. Um, and the 12.5% couldn't be manipulated by anyone. It's a flat fee. That falls squarely within uh, this court's decision in Rosa. We were following the contract at step one, and in step two, ultimately... It was CVA's decision whether to agree with the AMPS or CDS recommendations. That's Rosso's step two. We don't have control over the MBR, for example, when CVA can unilaterally say, no, we're not, gonna, we're not going, going to follow that recommendation. So with respect to the legal claims as a breach of fiduciary duty under 29 U.S.C. 1109, it's axiomatic TBG can't breach a fiduciary duty if it's not a fiduciary. Whether we're a fiduciary is a question of law. Judge Smithcamp was correct in holding that in, in performing these ministerial acts. Remember, CVA held the money. CVA, it's not as though TBG was just writing checks on CVA's account. We submitted weekly funding requests. If CVA approved the claims, CVA would then transfer the money to TBG. TBG would then issue payments as directed by CVA. That is a classic um, ministerial act by a service provider, it falls squarely within the regulation that we cited, 29 CFR section 2509, um, and, and it's consistent with ERISA law that we don't hold service providers to a higher fiduciary standard uh, when they are performing ministerial acts, which is all CDA was doing. Um, with respect to the prohibited transaction, again, CVA has to prove that we were a fiduciary. The purpose of that rule is to prevent a fiduciary from self-dealing by causing the plan to engage in non-arms-length business deals. That didn't happen here um, because, because the party who caused all of this, who made all the decisions, was CVA. CVA was the fiduciary. You used a big word there. You say who did everything. Uh, well... It, who made the all, all and everything there I heard. Who had the final decision is probably more accurate. And yeah, that's yeah. the key. I thought you wouldn't want to say the all. 
<laughs> and that's the key is that the issue is who gets to make the final call. We can't control things if okay, CBA counsel, can your, your time has expired, and I understand next we have Ms. Mitchell. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Megan Mitchell, and I represent Appalee's Advanced Medical Pricing Solutions, or AMPS, and Claims Delegate Services, CDS. As you've seen from our briefs, AMPS and CDS provided the exact services that CVA contracted for them to provide in return for fees that CVA agreed to pay. But after CVA realized that it did not like the health plan that it adopted, CVA lodged reckless allegations under ERISA and even claimed that the Appalese violated RICO. CVA has never been able to show a single breach of fiduciary duty or any prohibited transaction by AMPS or CDS. Instead, it is asking this, over, this court to overturn two well-reasoned judgments from the late Judge Smith Camp, which correctly entered summary judgment in favor of the Appalese and awarded attorney's fees against CVA. Judge Smith Camp's opinions were based upon the clear record evidence in this case. Starting with AMPS, the evidence is clear that it was Counsel, never... Counselor, could I interrupt you because your time's short? Would you start with CDS since they're a limited fiduciary? And does Rosso have any relevance at all to a limited fiduciary? Um, in this case, Your Honor, I don't believe that Rosso has any... any um, it just doesn't play a role because it... No, Counsel, I'm just talking about the one that's a limited fiduciary because, of course, as you know, the key to, to uh, Rosso is are you, are you or are you not a fiduciary? Correct. C and, and, and we all agree that CDS is a limited fiduciary. So begin with it. So begin with it and tell us what our guidance is. If it's not Rosa, what's our guidance? The guidance for CDS is whether it breached its limited fiduciary duty to the plan. And its limited fiduciary duty to the plan was to administer claims in accordance with the permitted payment levels that CVA set forth in its plan document. CVA's witnesses testified under oath that they were never able to identify any claim that was administered improperly. So CDS performed its limited fiduciary duties under the plan. The only issue here, Your Honor, is with respect to the fees that CDS, that CVA knew that it would pay for RBR services. So I, I, want, I want to just follow up there for a moment. Um, in the record, is there any place at all where uh, there was any allegation that CDS um, uh, somehow breached its duties related to that post-hospital and facility services provisions for which the limited fiduciary uh, position was established? There were allegations to that effect, Your Honor. They were never borne out by the evidence. So, so there was never any evidence deduced? No, Your Honor. And that's why CVA's theory in this case changed late in the litigation when they discovered, effectively, they manufactured an argument that the fees were unknown. That really was not an issue until late in discovery when the rest of CVA's claims for breach of fiduciary duty really fell apart when there was no evidence to support them, which also goes to our arguments that the plan has really never shown loss to the plan or damages. For MBR, as you've heard ad nauseum, that program resulted in savings to the plan. During the RBR program, CVA chose to adopt a reference-based reimbursement plan, which required 
health claims to be paid on a Medicare plus or a cost plus basis, CDS's role and AMPS's role in administering that plan was to calculate those claims, determine the amount that would be paid, and then it had additional follow-on limited fiduciary duties with respect to administering those claims. There's no allegations or credible evidence in this case that AMPS or CDS breached those limited fiduciary well, counsel, you said a magic word credible. You didn't really mean that, right? Because we don't judge credibility at this point. No, Your Honor. J judge Smith Camp correctly found that there were no disputed facts to show that there was any breach of fiduciary duty by AMPS or CDS with respect to its claims administration. Counsel, earlier you mentioned the attorney fee award. I have, I have a question in that regard. Was there ever a determination made in the district court that the RICO claim was frivolous? Your Honor, the RICO claim was dismissed at the motion to dismiss stage. The court expressed extreme disapproval, I would say, of that claim when CVA requested a TRO. But then with subsequent briefing, that claim was dismissed. And so there was not necessarily a finding at that stage that the claim was frivolous. The RICO claim was discussed in Judge Smith Camp's opinion awarding fees. Counsel, does Section 502G1 limit the award of fees to claims under that subchapter? So you're correct, Your Honor. The ERISA statute does provide for an award of fees to either party under the statute. The district court also has inherent discretion to sanction parties and to award fees. AMPS and CDS also moved for an award of fees under Rule 11. TBG moved for an award of fees under the court's inherent authority as well. And it's important to note that the district court... They were not awarded under Rule 11, right? They were not awarded under frivolous, right? The district court indicated that those motions were moved. They were not awarded under those, right? Go ahead. Yes, Your Honor. And pardon me, Judge Gross, if I interrupted, but I wanted to be sure. Go ahead. Thank you. It's also important to note that Judge Smith Camp reduced the award of attorney's fees. So she went through an analysis and reduced the request from what the parties asked for. In all likelihood, because the RICO claim, to the extent that's your question, whether the fees were awarded under ERISA to cover other claims, the amount of the reduction would have covered any fees that were spent on the RICO claim, which was dismissed early in the litigation. I looked at it too quickly. By about what percent or fraction did she reduce the fees? As to AMPS and CDS, the reduction was, I believe, around 20%. It was a significant reduction. So there was a reduction to our hourly rates as well as the total amount of hours. That's good enough for this purpose. Go ahead. Yes, Your Honor. So it's important. You've heard TBG's counsel and our briefs point out over and over, there was never any dispute over what fees CVA agreed to pay for the MBR services and the RBR services that it contracted for. Its own witnesses knew that. Its expert witnesses knew that. This is a legal argument that its attorneys have manufactured. In two complaints under oath, CVA verified what it knew to be true, that the fee to AMPS and CDS was 10%, and to TBG, that fee was 2%. 
because CVA continually asserted claims in this case without basis, ignoring this actual evidence, Judge Smith can't properly awarded attorney's fees against it. She aptly found that all of the relevant factors favored an award against CVA, and she reasoned that despite its own admissions and affirmations that no fraud had taken place, Central Valley persisted in its claim that defendants conspired to defraud the plan and engaged in prohibited transactions. CVA's claims lacked merit from the beginning of this lawsuit, and we respectfully request that her opinion be affirmed. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Mitchell. Ms. Vogt, where do you? Yes, um, I represent GMS Benefits, Inc. and Susan and Dan Leonard as individuals. Um, Their role was even more... I I will interrupt you just briefly to be sure your camera's on. Are the other judges seeing the advocate? Yes, I am. Oh, so it's a problem with mine. So, Ms. Vogt, I'm sorry for interrupting you. You'll get a few seconds at the end. You go ahead and proceed. I hear you fine. Okay, thank you. Um, as, as you may have noticed, uh, nowhere in the opening argument was GMS or the Leonards mentioned or in any way uh, talked about as having any part in the alleged conspiracy, which they have now boiled down to the single allegation that AMPS should not have been paying part of the agreed-upon fee to, <clears throat> to TVG. But AMPS, or I mean, I'm sorry, GMS was only the broker. At the beginning of uh, 2015 and 2016, uh, as they had done in prior years, GMS benefits presented options for plans. They included a self-insured option. They included an option that was administered by a a third-party administrator other than TBG, uh, and they presented the plans in 2015 with the MBR option and in 2016 with the RBR option. They never acted as anything other than brokers. Their fee of $18 per employee per month was exactly the same no matter what CVA chose. So what CVA chose was they chose the single plan that had the lowest monthly cost. That's what they looked at. They knew there there was going to be balanced billing, which they later complained about. They knew exactly what GMS was going to be paid, no no matter what plan they picked. Um, They have alleged a conspiracy involving GMS, which... GMS relationship with CVA did not depend at all on TBG. They regularly presented other options that did not involve TBG. And uh, as you may have noticed, GMS was not a member or was not a participant in any of these contracts. GMS had a contract with CVA to act as an insurance broker, and they did that. Now, with regard to Dan and Sue Leonard, in the in appellant's entire opening brief, there's only one or two pages that mention GMS. There's not a single mention of the Leonards. In their reply brief, there is only one mention of the Leonards, and that is in one sentence of GMS slash the Leonards. There was absolutely no basis for GMS or the Leonards to be involved in this. There was never any kind of allegation that the Leonards uh, were using 
were using GMS improperly that would allow them to pierce the corporate veil. There were no allegations supported by evidence that they did anything other than in their role as employees and officers of GMS. That was their entire involvement. Um, their one big allegation is that GMS should not have received an additional $1 uh, per employee per month from TBG. But that money was paid out of TBG's assets. To be a prohibited transaction, you have to have plan assets. The money that was paid by TBG to GMS did not come from plan assets. So therefore, the judge was entirely correct in granting summary judgment in favor of GMS and the Leonards, and you should affirm that decision. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Vogt, and you appeared right after I spoke. <laughs> and so, not to worry. Uh, Okay, Ms. Thorne, we're back to you. Yes, Your Honor, I'll pick up uh, with GMS first. The district court cited three Harris Trust cases in its uh, decision finding that GMS was liable and said that ERISA doesn't regulate non-fiduciaries. We know that is not the case on based on Harris Trust, and for that reason alone, the district court's decision with respect to GMS must be reversed. With respect to the disclosure statement and RBR, you heard TBG's counsel say that the disclosure statement talks about a percentage of savings. It does. What it doesn't say is anything about gross build charges. And uh, the RBR services, unlike MBR, were on gross build charges. So the ERISA disclosure statement simply does not apply because it doesn't contemplate that setup. Uh, you also heard that there were no damages and that all the services were provided just as they should have been pursuant to the contract. These contracts were to reduce plan cost. Plan costs went from $5 million to $10 million under TBG and AMPS. And my time is about out, uh, Your Honor, so thank you very much, unless there are any other questions. Okay, seeing no questions for the other two judges, cases number 19-1000, 19-1001, 19-1002, 19-1003, 